1 Timothy chapter 1 invites you to turn there, uh, but also to turn into the book of Acts. Both of these are in the New Testament. Acts is right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And then 1 Timothy is um, on the latter parts of Paul's letters. And so we'll have two scripture readings today. The first one will be in Acts chapter 21, verses 20, uh, verse 27, all the way through chapter 22. So a little longer reading today. And then we will look at our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, as we continue our, on our series, Entrusted with the Gospel, um, Paul's letters to 1 and 2 Timothy and to Titus. So we'll begin with the reading in Acts, chapter 27. If I could set the background here, this is the, uh, the account of the Apostle Paul as he does indeed return to Jerusalem. Last week we read about his speech to the Ephesian elders where he said that the Holy Spirit um, was leading him to go to Jerusalem and that he knew that imprisonment was awaiting him there. And so now we catch up this, with the story that the Apostle Paul is there. He's at the temple and he is um, arrested. So chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, this is a reference to Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen uh, uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the fact because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people and then when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. 
And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven uh, suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I, prison, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him, but, when they, but then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered him, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. 
Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet him, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Again, these are the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for having spoken to us in your word. And we pray now that as we reflect on this passage And the life of the Apostle Paul and your grace shown upon him, may we likewise uh, understand the message that you can say through your holy word to us through this, this account. And so we'd ask you speak to us now by your word. By your spirit, you would soften the soil of our heart to receive the seed of your word that it may push roots down deep and bear much fruit in our lives. And we ask you to do this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, to recap, Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to kind of put to order some things that were happening in the church in Ephesus. And he immediately, as we saw last week, had warned him about the risk of false teaching and false teachers who were teaching a different doctrine devoting themselves to myths and speculations rather than on the gospel. And in this discussion about the wrong way, the unlawful use of the law we saw last week, and then the more rightful or lawful use of the law, and that is leading one to understand their sinfulness and their need for a savior, At the end of all of this, the Apostle Paul immediately causes him to burst into praise. Notice in verses 12 and verse 17, kind of bookend the passage that we read. He talks about being entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 11, 
And this causes, I think, Paul to reflect on his life, the purpose of his life, the calling that he has received. He had been entrusted with this gospel, and it immediately called him to burst forth and say, I thank Christ for his work in me. And it ends with, and to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And in between this, the bookends here of this praise, you have um, a very personal autobiographical part of Paul's life. He's not just talking about the gospel in an abstract sense. He now begins to talk to Timothy and I think to the rest of the Ephesian church through Timothy here. Because, of course, Timothy would know all of this. But to remind Timothy and all who would hear this read in the church of who Paul is and what God had done in him. So today I want to look at the Apostle Paul and his life. Let me begin with part one. Let's look at a brief, uh, brief, I'll try. Let's look at a biography of the Apostle Paul's life, okay? And I want to focus in particular on his early life. I'm not going to go uh, into... Uh, the to everything but I want to look at like the background per, to the Apostle Paul let's start with uh, and by the way as you noticed in our reading um, his Jewish name was Saul when the Lord appears to him he said Saul Saul perhaps from the namesake of the king of Israel uh, but this Greek form of his name would be the uh, would be Paul so I'll refer to him as Paul here as we often do um, so that's his Jewish name, uh, but where was he born? And what about his citizenship? We saw this in our reading. Acts chapter 21, verse, verse 39, when Paul had said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, okay? A citizen of no obscure city. Again, in, it, it occurred again in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Where is, where is Tarsus? Well, this would be if you saw the map of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, it would be kind of on the southern east, southeastern coast. And when he says it was no obscure city, that's kind of an understated reference to the significance of Tarsus. This was a great city along that kind of really connected east and west. Uh, Alexander the Great had stayed in Tarsus uh, on, on his campaigns. Um, Anthony, the, the Roman uh, general met Cleopatra. You've heard about Anthony and Cleopatra. You've seen this probably in movies or whatever. They actually met for the very first time in this city. It was a home to the Stoic philosophers. Much could be said about Tarsus, but it was a very significant city. And as a matter of fact, being born in that city entitled you to the kind of the highest status, as you gained from our reading, the highest status is a Roman citizenship. The one guy had said, well, I bought my citizenship. It cost me a pretty good sum. Paul's like, I was born with it. And that came because of where he was born, the significance of the city. So we saw that in Acts chapter 22. He even brings this up again with the significance of his uh, citizenship. I was, uh, I was born a Roman citizen by birth. And this uh, was so significant that they... You notice this, that they withdrew immediately from this persecution that they were going to do because they know they actually could have experienced the some severe penalty, perhaps even the death penalty for violating the 
the political rights of this person. It's interesting that Paul utilized his political rights to his advantage when he needed to, to advance the gospel. But the point is, is he had top-tier Roman citizenship because of where he was born. What about his education? We saw this as well in our reading. Galatians chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Uh, in his speech, he says, you know, he was um, a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but he was brought up in this city. That is in reference to Jerusalem. Perhaps he was sent there as a young child, perhaps showed promise in the local synagogue, perhaps showed promise among the local Jewish teacher that he was actually sent to Jerusalem, and he says, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. In this, and I like how he says this, is in the same way that you are. The violence that they were heaping upon him, it's interesting, and just that little statement there at the end of verse 3, and he says, and I was just like you guys. Beating, beating Paul to death like they had to pick him up and carry him out because of the violence of, this, of what was going on. And Paul goes, he saw in the, the rage in their eyes and he goes, I know that. Look, I had that look. As zealous for God as all of you are this day. Notice he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. This was a very famous Jewish Pharisee. He's mentioned a couple of times in Acts. You might remember in Acts chapter 5 when they're trying to figure out what to do with this new movement of Jews who are following after Jesus and claiming him as Messiah. And they're gathering together. What do we do? We got to beat these guys. We imprison them. We put them to death. And he's the one who speaks up and he goes, you know what? If, if this movement is of God... Then, then you're not going to be able to stop it. You remember that passage? This is the same, that's the same guy. And everybody listened to him because of the wisdom that he had. His, he was actually the grandson of the great rabbi Hillel. If you remember, there, you might be aware of the two famous schools in Judaism right around the, uh, the New Testament era, era. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. So this is of the school of Hillel, the grandson is Gamaliel, and the apostle Paul was his protege. So he was getting the highest level of education in Judaism. As a, as a matter of fact, look at how he recounts his Jewish heritage in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll have this on here. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he talks about how uh, we're uh, the circumcision. We worship of Christians, true Christians. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he adds this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning in my human abilities, if anyone else... Uh, thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Perhaps sounds a little arrogant, but I think that this is actually probably accurate. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Okay? Following according to the law, which suggests maybe, maybe not all Jews were circumcised precisely on the, day, at the eighth day at that time. We don't know. But he counts this as his credentials, 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, we're going to see that word more, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. But he continues, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of his worldly achievements, he counts as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The point I want you to notice here is he's reciting his credentials in his Jewish heritage. In Galatians chapter 1, he puts it this way. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. That's his Jewish heritage. But that zeal produced a hatred and hostility toward Christ and Christians. Acts chapter 8, the story about Stephen, Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen gives a long speech and they condemn him and they stone him with stones. In Acts chapter 8, it says, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the, the church in Jerusalem. And a little bit later, it says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering House after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. We just read about his zeal in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. That's what appeared in his speeches. He goes, being zealous for God as all of you are today. In Acts chapter 26, he says it this way. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Friends, Paul was a murderer, a religious murderer. He was approving the death, not just of Stephen. He was going all over. The Roman Empire, the eastern part of the Roman Empire at this time, finding Christians and killing them. So that's why Paul says, as he says in verse 13, that I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. It's a helpful, I think, backdrop to the, the life of the Apostle Paul. And so that's how he begins here. So we've looked at his biography here. Now, now I want to look at Paul's testimony in these key verses, verses 12 
13 and 14. And I'm going to look at them in not canonical order. I'm going to kind of look at them in a chronological order. So summing up his entire life that we've just looked at here in these last few moments, you would sum it up with this word, condemnation. Paul, this zealous and fervent follower of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures, of the traditions of his fathers, the Apostle Paul came to find out that in his zeal for what he thought he was doing in following the law, he was actually a breaker of it. He was a blasphemer when he thought he wasn't. He was an insolent opponent. That's where we, the Greek word there is the Greek word we get for hubris. To sum up his entire life there, he was in a state of condemnation before God. So that's how he says it in verse 13a. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But then Paul, the second part of this, we would notice Paul's conversion. And he puts it this way in the rest of verse 13 and into verse 14. But I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We saw that in our reading, the Apostle Paul, and you can see this. It's, I believe it's in the handout. You could look at these passages uh, no fewer than three, three times in Acts. And then in a couple of other places, the Apostle Paul tells the entire story of his conversion, his testimony. Not, you know, and I want to be clear, um, there's, there's some who would try to limit our testimony as not the, the speaking of the gospel. I think some, some might be able to share the testimony of what God is doing in their life, and they think that they're getting to the gospel. And so they would say, but the gospel, you have to mention, when you're talking about the gospel, you're talking about the life uh, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins. But you can do that in sharing your testimony. You can share the gospel and then share the effects of the gospel and what it has done to you. The Apostle Paul did that regularly. Acts chapter 9 tells the story. And then in Acts chapter 22 that we read, he retells that story. And in Acts chapter 26, he retells the story again. You would think that Luke, who penned Acts, would be like, hey, we got this already. <laughs> but he, they, he put quill to parchment three times to tell this story friends when's the last time you've told your story when's the last time you've told a story about you being in a state of condemnation and god did this because of christ have you rehearsed that story has it been a while since you've shared it Maybe we, like Paul, can refresh in our story a little bit and find a way to, to concisely say, this is where I was in a state of condemnation. And Christ converted me. Galatians 1, verses 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me to me. I'll put it this way. Paul was not an Arminian. 
Paul was evidence that salvation is all of grace. Paul knew that his salvation was purely the work of Christ radically transforming him. Paul didn't go, you know, let me reason out the story about the Messiah. No, Jesus appears, boom, blinds him, knocks him off of, knocks him onto this road to Damascus and transform him. Paul was not a seeker. God saved him, boom. And that's regeneration, being born by the Spirit of God. And then Paul did what Christ commanded him to do. He believed. That's conversion. And that's why Paul testifies, this is purely, this is the grace of God. He says, I received mercy. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, it, and if Christ did not intervene, I would still be in ignorant unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The term here, the picture, is like a, a flood that just overruns the banks of a river. The grace of Christ just overruns the banks and, sw and swept him in it. For, the, for, with me, for, with, for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And Paul here, I think he's saying... There's, there's also a, a, an apologetic reason why he's saying this too in the context of what he had just said to Timothy about the false teachers Paul is saying faith and uh, love that are in Christ Jesus is a huge contrast to the false teachers who uh, faith and love being the very things along with a good uh, a pure heart and a good conscience were the things they swerved from so that's Paul's conversion that's part three of his testimony is his commission his appointment as a servant of christ as an apostle to the gentiles and this is where we got to go back up to verse 12 to see his reference here and this is why he says i thank him who has given me strength christ jesus our lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to this service now we not to understand this in the large scope of what's happened in the apostle's life jesus didn't go Boy, that guy, I, I, could, I consider him, he, he's, he's faithful. He's inherently faithful, and so I'm going to convert him. That's not what we are to understand what Paul is saying there. He judged me faithful. He's saying, this is kind of an acknowledgement that, that he chose me to be a servant. It's not something inherent in me that enabled me to be his servant, that he's calling me and commissioning me for this task. But in God's judgment, he chose me to do it. And as a matter of fact, he goes on to say that it goes, it's not really in my strength. Not goes on to, he begins this. I thank him who has given me strength to appoint him for this service. You saw this even in the account that we read, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. At his conversion, Paul also gets the commissioning to be an apostle. Now, it's interesting to note you don't often catch this when we're reading through the, the book of Acts, is that it's a period of years, years between that moment and when the Apostle Paul really begins his ministry. Years. Perhaps a decade. I can imagine, it makes sense, because I can imagine the Apostle Paul being so steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures that him having to go and kind of rethink some things. Like, I need to read this all over again. I read it through the eyes of zeal and hatred. 
And he goes back and reads the scriptures, and now he sees the Messiah everywhere, and it lines up perfectly with this account of the coming of Jesus Christ. So I think it, it makes sense that it's many years have transpired between this moment and when his uh, service really begins. His commissioning happens there, but there's a long period of time. He doesn't just jump right in. And let me just say this. If you're sensing a call to ministry, know that it might take you years too. From when you sense that call, years of preparation before it will manifest, your ministry will manifest. Don't think, don't think it's wasted. Just know that you're in preparation. I like the story about Ananias. The Lord comes to Ananias, and I think that this is great, because <laughs> uh, I put myself in Ananias' shoes. You want me to what? <laughs> this guy who we just saw, I just heard he killed, you know, these other people I knew. He was on his way to Damascus. Lord, you want me to do what? He, he, has, he has permission from the chief priests of, of the Jewish religion that I grew up in. And he has permission to now kill them if we follow and acknowledge Jesus. And Jesus says, go. This is Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And kings... And the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Again. Paul was commissioned. By Jesus himself to do this. And he did not have this power in his, in his own. Notice again. Verse 12. I thank him who gave me the strength. I thank him who has given me the strength. Elsewhere, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, another autobiographical moment. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency in this ministry is from God, who has made us ministers of a new covenant. Let me just say, you have a ministry too. And if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, it's not for apostleship. <laughs> there are no more apostles. Okay? The Apostle Paul had a unique ministry. He was called to be an apostle. But you do have a ministry. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, given the Spirit of God and dwelling in you as a seal and a deposit, you've been gifted for that in some way. And how this works, it, it doesn't mean you're automatically gifted with high level of excellence in whatever skills or qualities. You still grow and develop them, and they're refined and polished and developed over time but you have been given the ability by the spirit of god strength to do ministry service and i think sometimes we shrink back because we we feel like it's not within our power well it's not it's not the strength comes from him who is sufficient your sufficiency comes from god so that's Paul's testimony. He's in a state of condemnation, which he acknowledges, tells the story of his conversion and his commissioning. And now, part three here is Paul's trustworthy saying in verse 15. This is the first of five trustworthy sayings. If you read that and you go, oh yeah, this is that passage where it says trustworthy sayings. Well, it's actually, it actually occurs five times. 
uh, two more times in, in Timothy. We're not going to look at them, but two more times in Timothy. First uh, Timothy, one more time in Second Timothy, and one in, in Titus. And this is like a trustworthy saying. Perhaps this is a well-known common expression, uh, a, a meme, the first century equivalent of that or something. Um, it's a well-known saying, and so Paul gives his stamp of apostolic authority on it. And he says, here's a trustworthy saying. And it's deserving of full acceptance. Everyone everywhere. Well, what about the elect? And what about God's calling? And what about, you know, sovereign? Uh, but the gospel call goes out to all. This, this is worthy of full acceptance. And he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you could find the... You know, there's elevator versions of the gospel. This would be like passing by somebody on the street version of the gospel. A concise, succinct summary of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the faithful saying. I love you break it down even into like four different parts. Christ, anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one in the Old Testament that God was going to send. Christ Jesus, remember the story about Jesus and the angel coming to Joseph and he says, you're going to call him Jesus. Why? Because the word Jesus means Yahweh saves. And the angel says, and he will save his people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world, which is embedded in there. You're like, wait, came, that's, that's a, a, a language of movement from one place to the next. Where was he before? Well, this is the eternal state of, of the Son of God, and he came into the world, the incarnation. There's a lot of doctrines that's embedded in all of these to save sinners. Notice that this is a, a reference to the historical reality. This is not just an abstract concept. Christ Jesus came into human history. That's why the Apostle Creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. This happened. It's not a religious abstract thought. It's grounded in history. And then Paul adds his self-assessment to this. I think the trustworthy saying that's probably got a stamp of approval is Christ Jesus came into the world, saved his sinners. And then Paul is adding this, of whom I am the foremost. In his self-assessment, he ranks himself as the worst. Or as King James puts it, the chief of sinners. That's how I often remember it. Christ, the chief of sinners. Top. He's, he's the chief of sinners, and then in Ephesians chapter 3, he kind of describes himself from the opposite end of this. Ephesians chapter 3, of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, right? So, of, so where is he rank? I rank? I rank the worst of sinners and the least of saints. There is no person in history more undeserving of mercy and grace than Paul. But here's the thing. No one is deserving of grace. It's embedded in the term. If you're, if you're deserving of grace, I tell you what, it's not grace. No person in history is more undeserving of grace. And humanly speaking, there was no hope for someone as insolent, hubris, malicious, 
aggressive as the Apostle Paul. But he was not beyond the mercy of God. Or put it this way. God's grace is greater than the deepest depths of the depravity. Much could be said about this testimony of Paul, his autobiographical material. But one thing that you could say that I think stands out above all of the others is that God's grace is greater than the deepest depths of his depravity. Why did God sovereignly choose to save the worst of sinners? Why? Well, Paul... According to Paul, he would say it wasn't some random act of kindness. It wasn't a a broad grace that went out to everywhere. It just somehow worked in him. For Paul, it had a very specific purpose. And so this is the last, the fourth one. Not really the last. I got more. The fourth one. God's purpose in Paul's salvation. Okay, now I want you to notice this. Verse 16. Why did God show mercy to Paul? What What purpose did he have? According to the Apostle Paul, I received mercy for this reason. This is a purpose clause right here. It's telling you. I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, repeating what he had just said in verse 15, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why did God give you mercy, Paul? If he gave me mercy mercy as the chief, then that's an example to all who would believe. If God can save me, he can save anybody. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if this is true for you, then Paul's conversion, his salvation, was an example for you. Do you feel like you've, you're too far gone? Maybe, if you, maybe you are a Christian, but you struggle with some assurance, or maybe you're not a Christian because you you're not sure you can be one. Maybe you feel like you're too far gone. I've heard many of these before. I'm too far gone. I'm too old. I'm really, I want to take my kids to church because it's not too late for them. Have you ever heard people talk like this? I used to, you know, kind of cut my teeth in youth ministry and children's ministry, and I'd heard that so many times. And I wanted to just, I should go, just, I should have quoted Paul's words to them. Maybe you're too old. You're too sinful. You're too wild. You don't understand. So much sin is, has, has passed underneath that bridge. Let me say, if there's, some, if, there's, if there's hope for someone as malicious and as aggressive as Paul, and God saved him, God can save you. Because it's not about you. It's about Christ and what he has done. You may ask, well, how can... Maybe you're a believer and you may ask, well, how can I get this assurance I would say there's many ways that you, can, uh, that you can get assurance that you are indeed saved and forgiven and reconciled to God. But there's one big one comes right from this verse. 
And you could say it this way. Okay, there was this guy, Paul, and Jesus interceded into his life. He interrupted his, his uh, insolent ways and he cut him short and he called him out. This guy was the worst of the worst of people, foremost of, uh, of sinners, least of saints, the least of the apostles, he says elsewhere, and Christ saved him as he was. He didn't put him on a performance improvement plan with the hopes that Paul would turn things around and then God, Christ could work with him. No, Christ saved him. He changed his nature. He overrode his insolence and his rebellion will and turned him from hating God, hating the gospel, to truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him sincerely and endeavoring to walk uh, with him in all good conscience before him. It's amazing. That's amazing. Now, it's very important to note to whom this strong assurance is given. Notice he says, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So let me just kind of say that this, this is quite clear. Salvation requires faith. It requires faith in Christ. Now, you've heard me say this before. Faith, what is faith? You know, even the demons believe in God and, you know, right? So what is faith? Biblical faith. You've heard me say this before. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Faith is knowledge of the facts and information. It's ascensus, it's agreement, or I agree with those facts that they're true. And then it's fiducia, it's trust, it's dependence, it's relying upon it. Or as our confession puts it, I love this, faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness as the, the alone instrument of justification. Or I reworded it here a little bit for us. Faith is receiving and resting on. That's the fiducia part, right? Can I believe that this, uh, this podium can hold my weight if I lean on it? I sent, noticia, I know it. Um, I agree with that, a census. And then I actually, I lean on it. Now is the strength of, is the strength of, is, is, am I the one that's causing the strength for this to hold me? No. But I rest on it. I receive and rest on Christ. Is Christ enough to save me from my sins that I cast myself upon him? Yeah. Receiving and resting on Christ in his, uh, his righteousness is the sole instrument or the alone interest, instrument of our justification. Now, of course, uh, 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 you're saved by grace through faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. It will manifest itself in, in works in your life, of course. But faith is receiving and resting on Christ. Do you receive and rest on Christ? Have you received and rested on Christ? Yes. And then do you now receive and rest on Christ? If, you, if that is true for you, then like Paul, you may in this life, again, quoting from the London Baptist Confession, be certainly assured that you are in a state of grace and you may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make you ashamed. 
If Paul was not beyond the mercy of God, then neither are you. This is a display of the perfect patience of Christ. You want to know how God, how patient God is with you? Paul says, look at me. What better moment in reflecting on just the mercy and grace of God as demonstrated in the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul, and how that was specifically, it says, and for this reason, so that all of us here on August 20th, 2023, sitting together in worship at Redeemer Bible Church can hear that scripture and know that that is true for you too. If you receive and rest on Christ. Amen. With that, let's let's turn to the Lord's Supper. I invite you to stand. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together before we close in singing. And of course, you know this. This is the meal on the night that he was betrayed. Our, our Lord and Savior was betrayed. He gave this meal as a tangible expression of the spiritual reality of the gospel. So that we could know that we were communing with the resurrected Christ by the Spirit of God, and that his broken body and shed blood and all the benefits thereof are, are brought to us and given to us for us to, to partake. Amen? So let's pray together as we come to the Lord's table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and your gospel. We thank you for your mercy and grace and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus and how you demonstrated that to the Apostle Paul in his life, radically changing him, and that you've done so even now and even today. That many throughout even this room right now would understand completely that transformation that could take place and that it is not of ourselves, but it's completely the work of of your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you that we could come hear your word and be nourished by it. And now we come to your table to be nourished by the truth of the broken body and shed blood of your son. And so we pray, thanking you. We pray now, even as we've confessed our sins, we know that we come with, with joy before this table because of what you offer to us in celebration through your son, Jesus. And so we come with grateful and, and humble hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.